from PRX. Today on Studio 360. In Los Spookies, I play Andres. He is the adopted heir to a chocolate empire. Creators and stars of the kooky, yeah, kooky new HBO comedy Los Spookies introduce us to their characters. He is the kind of person who I'm attracted to, which is humorless. He's sort of like the human version of a fainting couch. Plus... If you wish to get any of us who were Stonewall GOF angry, all you have to do is mention the myth of Judy Garland. The idea that Judy Garland's death in 1969 set off the Stonewall riots and other things Hollywood gets wrong about the opening battle for gay liberation. We were 18 years old. We were in the Stonewall dancing our asses off. You don't dance your ass off to Judy Garland. That and more is ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. When friends get together to start a business... Usually it's to do something like open a food truck or create an app. But in the new HBO comedy series Los Espookies, a group of friends does something singular. They start a business staging spectacularly scary stunts. The show premiered on HBO this month, and I'm liking its alterna quirky visual style and sense of humor. But what totally sets Los Espookies apart from all other half-hour comedies on American television it's almost entirely in Spanish. With subtitles, of course, the show was the idea of Fred Armisen's, formerly of Saturday Night Live and Portlandia, currently of Documentary Now. His two co-creators and co-stars are actual friends of each other's the SNL writer and comedian Julio Torres, and comedy writer and performer Ana Fabrega, both of whom joined me here the other day. So you graduated from college, apparently, like five minutes ago, and then left mm-hmm. your day job in credit risk management to become a brilliant comedy performer. But whatever you did before that is invisible on the Internet. What, where did you grow up? Where did you? What, what happened before? <laughs> what it's, are you hiding? Yeah, well, that's It's that's no it. coincidence that I tried to... Hide everything that happened before age, I don't know, 23. Um, I, I grew up in Arizona. I was born in Chicago. We lived in Iowa for a little bit. And then I moved to New York uh, for college. But I didn't have my name on any social media or anything like that up until when I decided I'm going to start doing comedy seriously because I didn't want employers to see that I was applying to these jobs and it's like, you know, a financial analyst or something and then see that I had these silly videos online because I wanted to be taken seriously. Uh-huh. <laughs> so why, if you grew up in all of those places, did you come to speak Spanish so perfectly? My parents are both from Panama. Uh-huh. All my family is from Panama. So my siblings and I are all first generation. Uh-huh. And Julio, you started working at Saturday Night Live in 2016. Right. You were soon writing some of the best 
produced pieces that have been on that show in years, in my opinion. There was one called Through Donald's Eyes. Through Donald's Eyes, yes. It was brilliantly conceived and executed. Then a brilliant one that made me go call my friends and tell them they had to watch it for Ryan Gosling when he was on the show about the typeface used for the movie Avatar. It happened again. (gasps) I thought it was behind me, but the dreams came back. I was up all night. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I forgot about it for years, but then I remembered that Avatar, the giant international blockbuster, used the papyrus font as its logo. Uh, Had you been wanting to do that since Avatar came out and you were in high school? The first thing that I remember from that poster is being bewildered that it was papyrus. I remember thinking, it's a fan-made poster. This is surely not the movie that has been discussed for so long now. And then I watched it in theaters, and the thing that stuck with me is just like, oh, so it is the logo. This is the logo. It might have not been a creative decision to go with papyrus. It could have just been budget constraints. But by the end of this huge, very expensive movie, they're (laughs) like, we can only use the Microsoft stock funds. But explain why, as a teenager uh, growing up in El Salvador, you were such a typeface aesthete as that. Well, I'm not. I'm not a typeface aesthete. I think, actually, Anna is better versed with typefaces than I am. But she didn't write that piece, though, as far as I I know. But uh, I agreed wholeheartedly (laughs) with the message. (laughs) When something looks funny in a way that wasn't intentional, it really sticks with me. Yeah. So Los Espookies is set in some unspecified Latin American country. It is mostly in Spanish, not entirely, but overwhelmingly in Spanish. I hate saying elevator pitch, but what is the basic idea of this show? It's a show about a group of friends in a fictional Latin American country who make horror for people who need it. Which is to say special effects. Special effects mostly. So, for example, in the pilot, a priest hires Los Spookies to help him fake an exorcism so he can show off that he is the coolest priest in the orphanage. Because there's a young, cool priest who's taking... (laughs) Because there's a young, cool priest who's usurping his spotlight. Mm -hmm. So there are various reasons as to why their clients feel like they need horror to fool someone into believing something. They're helping people trick and deceive others. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the reasons they need to be hired tend often to relate to some movie trope, The Exorcist, or, you know, oh, I'm whoever can stand being in this haunted house will yes. inherit my money. So mm-hmm. it, yes. it's it's a show about real people behaving as though they're in movies or something. It starts like that, and then the, the jobs get a little more abstract, but it yeah. is very kind of trope-heavy in the beginning. Yeah. So Fred Armisen, who is your famous, more famous partner in this endeavor from Saturday Night Live, from Portlandia, from God knows what else, also co-created, co-wrote, and co-stars with you in it. How did it come to be? I assume he was the instigator of this whole operation. Yeah, Yeah. you're correct. He wanted to make a show primarily in Spanish about a group of friends. At that point, he wanted it to be set in Mexico that were horror enthusiasts. I think when he brought it to us, it was horror makeup specifically. Yeah, that the prosthetics, friends were prosthetics and, and, stuff, like and that. stuff like that. And then he knew Anna from having collaborated with her like a year before then maybe or like yeah. a few months before then. He cast you on Portlandia, no? Uh, yeah, we yeah. met through Portlandia, yeah. Uh-huh. And then he knew of my work, but we had never like formally worked together really. And then he came to us individually and was like, hey, so do you want to write and maybe be in this? And I'm also talking to your friend. 
and, oh, and it was oh, so you were a, you were already friends, and he was talking. Oh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Anna and I have been friends for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, aha. Uh-huh. And I didn't know until reading about this show that Fred Armisen's uh, mother is Venezuelan. Yeah, yeah. So he comes by his parodying of Latin American television characters. Honestly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are grounded in an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And he can't be accused entirely of some kind of cultural appropriation uh, problem. We, we, we will let the masses decide <laughs> yeah. that. Yes, we will. The people we'll will vote. make that choice. Yeah. Exactly. Vote. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred decided he wanted to do this almost all in Spanish. There are some scenes that are not in Spanish. Mm-hmm. The Fred character, who's called Uncle Tico, Tico is a parking lot attendant in a valet in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Mrs. Santos, uh, I have a special delivery for you. Tu quien eres? Tico. This is my nephew. He was decapitated by a possessed child. It's going to be an exorcism for her. Excelente. That was a scene from Los Spookies. So, it's all in Spanish. And I read that you guys assumed, and Fred Armisen assumed, that, oh, it'll go on HBO Latino or something. And then HBO said, no, we want it on the main channel. I think that when Fred was pitching it around, his assumption was that that was going to be the type of home that the show was going to have. And then he was excited and pleasantly surprised to find out that in addition to being an HBO Latino, it'll... It's on HBO Anglo as well. An Mm -hmm. Anglo HBO production. Yeah. Well, that must be exciting for Viola, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I think it's great that it's not being put in a little corner for... You know, Hispanic viewers, it's like, here, this is for you and for you only. Well, and I read something, and it made sense, that they had done so well last year with this adaptation of My Brilliant Friend, which was all in Italian— and like uh-huh. Americans didn't mind reading those subtitles, yeah. so I guess they decided, oh, we won't. They won't mind reading these subtitles. Yeah, I mean, something that I keep thinking and, and talking about is that the world outside of the U.S. Most people consume American media, and they primarily do it in English. You know, a, a teenager anywhere in the world is watching the Avengers movie, and they're probably watching it subtitled. So now it's like, well, let's have it be both ways. Yeah, Anna, explain what who you are on the show. I play Tati, who is Ursula's younger sister. She is... um, Ursula being... One of the other spookies. And Tati works a lot of odd jobs. She is part of the group in in a very sort of test dummy role. And she's very earnest and loving and lost. (laughs) She's a person who we used to call simple. You know? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, where did that character come from? I love people who are not particularly self-aware, who are trying to find themselves, and who, I don't know, ha- have good intentions but don't really know where to draw lines sometimes. She lives an unexamined life. Mm-hmm. She's very, like you say, she's she's very simple and yet so deeply complicated. Yeah. Um, Julio, your character is named Andres. Uh, he is this... Humorless, uh, uh, <laughs> utterly humorless. <laughs> adopted, is, yeah. adopted, entitled heir to to a uh, chocolate fortune, and kind of obsessed with the mystery of who he is because yeah. he was adopted. And he's really committed to this dream, this vision of professionally creating scary, spooky stunts. Yes. And, and you've also said that Andres is in the very narrow scope of people I can play. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Um, I think that Andres like represents so many different things that you like, that yes. you have so much control over, and that you can really manipulate that person really well, which is, I think, why it's in Oh, that really? So right. he, he's, just, he's like the super rich dickish version of you, kind of? 
Kind of. I mean, he is the kind of person who I'm attracted to, which is, like you say, humorless. I feel like Andres wakes up and goes to bed thinking the same thought, and that thought is Andres. Just so... Self-absorbed. So self-absorbed. But he's also obviously a nice person because his yes, friends exactly. are nice. No, and he's not, no, he's not, you don't hate him, but you don't easily but, love him. But you don't <laughs> easily love him. And he's, uh, he's very drawn to beauty. Obviously, his boyfriend is... Beautiful. Beautiful and <laughs> stunning, but also just like his worst enemy. Yeah, And he likes being burdened, and he's sort of like the human version of a fainting couch, I feel like. Yeah, he's, good, he's, well, well said. Most of Spookies has a very uh, distinct look, especially for a TV comedy. And your upcoming comedy special is about shapes and objects. And your mother, uh, I, I know, is a designer and architect. So do you come by this aesthete thing uh, through her? I, I believe so. Growing up as a kid, the way things looked was always very important. And this is in San Salvador? And this is in San Salvador. And nothing looked the way it looked by accident. My mom is very purposeful about designing things. And we lived in this, essentially it was a two-story house, but the bottom floor was her boutique where she would sell her designs. And the top floor was like a, a converted apartment for us. But it was really stimulating to me from an early age to see that every inch mattered because the space was limited. You were aware of things were designed, which most people as adults aren't aware of, let alone as young. Right, right. So again, when something looks wrong, it's Right. sticks out to me and I and I remember it. Did you have a lot to say on the show about oh no this should be that how things should look? Well, we both did. So it was a pool of very particular people. Yeah. <laughs> that made the show look the way it looks. And I think you and I both wanted the show to look not like most comedies and it didn't want it to feel at all like the other sitcoms you see. And so I think You succeeded. Yeah, well, the, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And your hair, your character's hair is this very, very bright blue. In the whole six episodes, there's a lot of blue going on. There's a lot of blue. What's that about? Well, I was fixated with the idea of Andres having blue hair because within the palette of goth, let's say it, it was like almost logical that his hair had to be dark, but I wasn't ready for his hair to be black. I wanted something a little more eccentric than that and yet muted and moody. So, Everybody else has black hair, essentially, so you might as well. Well, the natural hair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so blue seemed like a moody, brooding, nice color palette for him. And then... It also says you're the star. It makes you the star. Cause, well, that was the intention. <laughs> uh, no, but also just he's very water and shadow-based. Right. Another style choice that was in the show that interested me so much is your character, dressed in the Jackie Kennedy... Dallas 1963 pink suit and pink pillbox hat. Who, whose idea was that? I don't remember whose idea. Well, so Tati, because she has a hard time making decisions of her own, every time that she has some sort of special occasion, she can only look to references. So then... I to think, directly copy. To directly right. copy. So in this circumstance, she feels rich. She feels successful. So I believe you came up with the idea that she should be dressed like Jackie Kennedy because to her mind, that is the richest, most successful example of a woman she can think of. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that she's wearing that dress from that incident, I feel like it's a 
oversight it's on, on Tati's on part. Oversight on Tati's part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but whose idea was that? Because it's a it is a darkly very funny joke. I guess it was me. I mean, when I think of Jackie Kennedy, that's the suit that comes to mind. That pink outfit. Yes. So when I, I, said, I, I, rec- I recall telling you, FYI, <laughs> have you considered it? <laughs> it might be over the line. And, and then we both laughed at the idea that oh. I don't think that that would. wouldn't know. That they wouldn't yeah. think about it. It was a very good touch. And just as you've described it, her imagination is constructed of television and tropes. Obviously, that's true of many people, not to the extent that Tati is yeah. afflicted, but it's real. That's a real thing. Tati is an exaggeration of, like you say, a lot of people. She reminds me of a BuzzFeed article. She wants to be <gasps> relatable. She yeah. wants to yeah. feel like she's partly, she's watching the show that everyone's watching. She just wants to fit yeah. in. So the show is not scary, even though no. it's about gothy, witchy, spooky stuff. I know Fred, as you say, brought that basic idea to the table at the beginning, but is that a thing or a subculture that interests you or you've been part of or anything else? No, the answer is no. But like Los Spookies, I feel like I had a very moody adolescence. Being a teenager and a, and a young adult in El Salvador, it was very much like, I want to get the fuck out of here. And it's just like, uh, so there's something that I feel a kinship to Los Spookies in that way. Yeah. And you, were you gothy? No, although I had a very, very brief phase when I was like 12 where I was shopping at Hot Topic, so nervous. I wanted to wear it so badly, and I thought everyone will think I stand out if I wear this, and I would buy little things and wear them. And like, like a, shirt, a shirt with uh, safety pins on the collar. Oh, my yeah. God. That was your um, punk moment? Yeah, and, but Made I was Made by a corporation so for you to feel punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, do you have, I mean, you're 27 mm-hmm. and 20. Oh, no, higher. 30? Two. Really? Yes. Okay. Old man. But anyway, you're young and created this show, and you're among the up-and-coming comedy stars. No, the up-and-coming comedy <laughs> stars. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Uh, how much does it feel lucky and how much, you know, I'm not saying be mock humble and say I'm not talented, but, like, how much does, has luck played into? I deserve everything I've gotten. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I don't know. Your I, eyes went dead when you yeah. said that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've thought a lot about that. that Me too. You know, because there's so many talented people in our Brooklyn mm. comedy scene who, for whatever reason, are not where I would maybe think that they should be. Like, the other people that I'm like, you should have your own show. Why don't you have a show? So, yeah. I, I mean, sure, it's like serendipitous that, like, I crossed paths with Fred and that you did and that we— wound up making this together. I mean, creatively, it does feel like we're three pieces of the puzzle in a way that's very serendipitous. And I mean, there's a lot of good fortune involved. Yeah, I feel like for every little thing, as little as it could be that I've made, I have so many people to thank. And uh, so there are six episodes. It's just started. Um, Will there be more or is... What's the idea there? Would, we, we don't, don't know. know. Would you like to. it? I would more? like it. I would love yeah. to make more. <laughs> yeah. I want to revisit this universe. Well, good luck to both of you on this show and your long and happy lives ahead. Uh, really. <laughs> Thank I, you. I guess we'll never see you again. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm delighted to have seen this show and spent uh, a day looking at all of your work and, uh, and meeting you. So thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Los Spookies airs on HBO on Friday nights. You can find videos of Ana Fabrega and Julio Torres' comedy online. And later this summer, a comedy special called My Favorite Shapes by Julio Torres will be on HBO.
coming up next. Hollywood's Stonewall Problem. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. See, there's as many Stonewall stories as there's gay queens in New York. And that's a shitload of stories, baby. That's Guillermo Diaz playing La Miranda in Nigel Finch's film Stonewall from 1995. Everywhere you go in Manhattan or America or the entire damn world, you're going to hear some new legend. Well, this is my legend, honey. Okay? My Stonewall legend. This is the 50th anniversary of the riot in and outside a a gay bar in Greenwich Village that is generally considered the beginning of the gay rights movement. And as that character in that movie says, there are at least as many stories of the event as there were people who participated. It's the Rashomon thing. And one place you'd have a hard time finding out the true story of Stonewall is from feature films, movies, promising to tell the true story of Stonewall. So we asked a couple of people who've thought a lot about the event, what Hollywood gets wrong and right about Stonewall. And our story starts with somebody who was actually there. I came to New York like many other 18-year-olds in 1969. I knew I was gay, but I knew it's something you couldn't talk about because when I grew up, uh, once you realized you were gay, it was, why am I different than everybody else? My name is Mark Siegel. I am publisher of the Philadelphia Gay News, and I was a Stonewall participant in 1969. I went to New York to find my people. I did what every other 18-year-old kid who had left their house did. Little by little, I picked up friends, and literally almost every night we'd end up in the Stonewall because that's a place where you could not only show affection and be yourself, you could dance your ass off. Police raids on gay bars were common, but on the night of June 28, 1969, gay residents of Greenwich Village decided they'd had enough and they took a stand at the Stonewall Inn, fighting back against police. There's certainly a lot of documentaries about Stonewall, but the cinematic portrayals have been few and far between and not very good, unfortunately. My name is Jude Dry, and I'm a film and television critic for IndieWire. There had been uh, race riots, there had been anti-war riots, there had been all sorts of civil rights riots. And now it was time for the gay riot. The Stonewall narrative has been fictionalized on screen twice. Two films of the exact same name, Stonewall in 1995, directed by Nigel Finch, is actually far more nuanced and interesting and revered um, than the later Stonewall. It centers around a character named Maddie Dean, a sort of country boy fresh to the city who falls in with a group of trans women and queer people hanging out in Christopher Street. And who is this kid I'm bailing out of the slammer for getting his goddamn ass caught where it ain't wanted or paid for, excuse me? I'm Matty Dean. Matty Dean? A goddamn hillbilly. Oh, Bostonia. You do not speak, I will slap you upside your head. He develops a romance with his character, La Miranda. What are you doing? I'm looking at you. <laughs> oh, God. Hey. She is trans-identified, she's a drag queen. They have a lot of um, interesting discussions about gender in this really kind of loose, 
way that I think only a movie from 1995 could do. You know what I'd like? I'd like to see you naked. Baby, you ain't ready for that. <laughs> no way. I'm ready. You see them naked and laughing and being intimate together. Wow. Hey, you know me. Such a tomboy. Don't worry, baby. If Kinsey calls, you're the butch one. And La Miranda, played by Guillermo Diaz, is exactly as fabulous as you would want without going over the top. So she has some of these great lines. You know, she gets roughed up by the cops and her friend says, La Miranda girl, why do you always put yourself through this? Why, Princess Ernestine? Just for the sheer irresistible goddamn glamour of it all. You know, Nigel Finch, the filmmaker, was actually on the side of the trans women characters. Then fast forward 20 years later, we've got this notoriously whitewashed Stonewall from 2015, directed by Roland Emmerich. I would've got you all figured out. Go up in Kansas, and mama probably bake apple pies. Yo, everybody, this is Danny. Danny. Welcome to New York. It centers this corn-fed white cis boy named Danny Winters, who arrives on Christopher Street, you know, ready to go to Columbia um, after having been kicked out of his Midwestern house for being gay. Hello, Danny dear. What do you think this nasty little gay place? Cute, isn't it? Yeah, you're lucky. People in New York like a street-looking boy like you. You can do very well down here. I need to go to the ladies' room. It's really more a coming-of-age story of Danny. It takes at least an hour and a half to get to the actual Stonewall riots, despite using that as its name. Where did all these people come from? I told you. This is going to get out of hand really fast. We, we the six just fucking left. Roland Emmerich is a gay filmmaker, but he's best known for these sort of disaster blockbuster films, and you can really see that when it gets to the riots. The Emmerich version feels much more like a Hollywood studio movie. Everyone's lined up. What are you doing? There's this dramatic moment where the white kid is, is holding the brick. No. That's not the way, Danny. And throws it into the window. No, Trevor! It's the only way! Gay power! Come on! Gay no one picked up a brick. There were no buildings being built in the neighborhood. What people did pick up were stones, empty cans. Some people threw the coins that were in the pockets. That's what was thrown at the bar. The 2015 version has this whole B-plot about Danny doing sex work. Jack, do you think maybe I could have my money first, please? Your money? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. And sexuality in general is just depicted as an extremely dangerous and negative thing for Danny. His early hookups are sort of under duress and there's no kissing and he gets caught and then he gets kicked out of his house and then it's straight to being sexually molested by cops. So we never see Danny have a loving or sexual relationship. I can't love you. You and me, I mean, different isn't even the word. <laughs> Danny, you don't think I know that? I know. I'm sorry. I'm too mad to love anyone right now. The film is so depressing, and that's the problem yeah. with it. We weren't depressed. We were happy warriors. We were fighting back for the first time in our history. We were fighting all the people who depressed us. I had a ball that night, and I think everybody else I know who was there was joyous. Danny, Judy just died. 
Judy who? Gone and... In London, they're flying her body over the, to Frank's mortuary on the Upper East Side. I mean, I'm going, I'm going to go pay my respect. And I'm sorry, man. If you wish to get any of us who were Stonewall GOF angry, all you have to do is mention the myth of Judy Garland. There's this myth that it was the death of Judy Garland that started the riot. It's kind of funny to imagine a bunch of old queens being really upset about Judy Garland's death and rioting. We were 18 years old. We were in the Stonewall dancing our asses off. You don't dance your ass off to Judy Garland. It didn't happen. Plain and simple, you know, bury that lady already. You got to recall, at that time in history, if you had any connection to family in the whole tri-state area, if you had any prospects of having a profession, if you wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, you got out of that building and you ran for the subway. You didn't stay. Only people who stayed were people of color, uh, trans people, and street kids. We were in. Happy Birthday, Marsha, which is Raina Gossett's film, directed with Sasha Wurzel. Stonewall. You want to come? Baby, I'm going where you're going. Hey, Marcia. Where we headed, girl? I'm about to be on stage, darling. I want to come. It's a short film. It, it casts Maya Taylor who, from Tangerine as Marsha P. Johnson. It's set on the day leading up to the Stonewall riots, M- Marsha P. Johnson's birthday party. She's the queen of this here island. She's the saint of Christopher Street. It's Miss Marsha P. Johnson. And it's a joyous film. It shows the joy in her life, and it shows trans women in friendship, loving each other, the queer community being exuberant, vibrant in all of its glory, right, the way that we know it to be. And I think the fact that it comes from a black trans filmmaker, Raina Gossett, clearly shows that trans people also want to be celebrating her life rather than dwelling on her murder. People keep asking me, how do I want to be remembered? Because I'm getting old. I'm 68. I'm going to die soon. (laughs) But the reality is when when I'm asked that, I don't say Stonewall. What I'm most proud about is my campaign to end invisibility. I always believe that if we get before the public, that changes their perception of who we are. They get to see we're, you know, flesh and blood. They get to realize that we're their cousins, uncles, aunts, what have you. Up until very recently and, and still, a queer film struggled to get made. Queer filmmakers are not given the resources that straight filmmakers are given. Often the the queer films that get to the Oscars are directed by straight filmmakers uh, with straight actors and maybe a gay producer thrown in there. I would also love to see other historical events in queer history shown in film. Anyone from San Francisco will tell you that three years before the Stonewall Uprising was the Compton's Cafeteria Riot drag queens and trans people and queer people sitting in at Compton's Cafeteria, which was this local hangout in the Castro. And they also rioted against the police. Stonewall wasn't the only activity of its kind. So we just, as a culture, we don't have a lot of on-screen representations of our history. For many of us who were there or created Gay Liberation Front from the ashes of Stonewall, it seemed to gradually become historic. I mean, for us, it was just a regular night out with a little extra uh, spirit, shall we say. Any Stonewall film and any portrayal of our history shouldn't dwell in how hard it was and how horrible everyone's lives were and how much violence there was. 
While that is a reality and that was a reality of being gay and it's important that young people understand that, that we honor the struggle, I think any film about the gay rights struggle has to be celebratory. That's Jude Dry, a film and TV critic for IndieWire. We also heard from Mark Siegel, the publisher of the Philadelphia Gay News. Alex Barish of Slate produced our piece with production help from Jocelyn Gonzalez. So you can accuse Hollywood of portraying a factual story wrong or a fictional one wrongly. This is obvious. This is obvious. This is stolen. So uh, I didn't really know what to do. But in the case of a big new movie that maybe seemed plagiarized, the truth turns out to be quite different. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. There is a new high-concept comedy in thousands of movie theaters this weekend. It's directed by Danny Boyle, whose films include Slumdog Millionaire, and written by Richard Curtis, whose screenplays include Love Actually. This new one is called Yesterday. This was my last gig. If it has happened by now, it's like a miracle. It's about a struggling musician named Jack who wakes up in a strange new world, just like this one, except nobody's heard of the Beatles or their music. So Jack pretends to come up with their songs, and that makes him the biggest rock star on earth. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Sorry, I'm just listening to Jack's new song. What's this one called? Uh, Leave it be. Let it be. Well, rock on, Jack. It's an obviously slam-dunk original idea, but for one novelist in Australia, it's a premise that sounded familiar. Very familiar. Studio 360's Sam Kim has the story. Nick Milligan is a writer and journalist based out of Newcastle, Australia, a port city about 70 miles north of Sydney. He's profiled celebrities for magazines like Rolling Stone and was the editor-in-chief for Reverb magazine an Australian outlet that covers art and culture. I've interviewed a many number of my sort of heroes. He's interviewed musicians like Alice Cooper, Ice Cube, and Pete Townsend. I have had a bit of experience speaking to musicians and I guess some insight into how they think and behave. In 2009, Milligan started drawing from that experience to write his first novel. It's a science fiction tale about an astronaut called Enormity. Uh, Enormity is about a character called Jack who goes on a deep space mission. I was terrified when I arrived on this planet, but I was also relieved to have reached the surface. And finds himself on another planet that's been inhabited by a race of humans that have essentially uh, evolved in parallel to us. And they speak English and they have music and culture and, and all those things. But a lot of pop music from Jack's planet doesn't exist amongst this race of people. So he gets an idea. He sees an opportunity to pass off Beatles music uh, as his own. I played two Beatles tunes, Norwegian Wood and You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. There's a group of business-type people about 20 meters away who have been listening to me. 
One of them, a young, clean-cut gentleman, walks over and pulls four coins from his pocket and hands them to me. He says, my name's Michael. Jack, I say. Did you write these songs that you're playing? I did. The reason I ask is that my girlfriend's father runs a record label. He's always keeping his ears open for new musicians. If I ever stumble across someone that impresses me, I let him know. Suddenly, the lie I've told about writing my own music grows heavy in my soul. He also plays other classic songs from Earth. He follows that through to the point where he becomes the biggest rock star on the planet. And the book then sort of explores the consequences of that lie. Enormity took four years to write, and Nick self-published the novel in 2013. It's been, been really fulfilling. The response uh, to the book was generally very positive. But uh, I think it was back in September, I heard about this new Danny Boyle film. Danny Boyle's Beatles film, Yesterday, stars Himesh Patel as a struggling British singer-songwriter who wakes up after a bus accident in a world where no one has heard of the Beatles because they never existed. So- what I saw online was comments on yesterday's trailer saying what an original idea this was. I personally love the trailer. I haven't seen this kind of a story. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, very interesting. It's a very, very original story. It's crazy. It's original. It's uh, it's unique. I. Uh, that concept is really cool. Wow. Never seen anything like that before. And that was, um, I was pretty down about the whole thing. Nick may have gotten to the idea first, but it didn't matter. His indie book was completely overshadowed by a Hollywood movie. And just like that, four years of his work seemed redundant. Anyone that now stumbles across my book on Amazon or reads the, the synopsis on the back of the book is going to think that someone's just ripped off yesterday rather than potentially the other way around. What's fitting in a painful sort of way is that yesterday is a story about a guy getting the credit for work that already exists. Yeah, um, and that irony certainly hasn't been lost on me um, uh, in a meta way, qu- quite ironic. But if there's someone who could relate to what Nick's going through, it's this guy. My name is Mark Nolkemper. I was a student in the Netherlands Film Academy. In 2014, he wrote and directed a short film for his graduation project. It was a sci-fi take on a fairy tale. I wanted to do something romantic, like one movie I loved as a kid uh, was Beauty and the Beast uh, by Disney. Pretty soon I uh, wanted the beast to be more beautiful than the human, where the human would be the beast. That film was called The Space Between Us. It's about a cleaning lady who works in a laboratory and falls in love with a creature that's half man, half fish. Oh my God, what have they done? It aired the first time on the graduation festival, which is in a a big cinema in Amsterdam. There are critics coming from newspapers. And not to say they really hated it, but no one really liked it. The Space Between Us got very tepid reviews. I worked so hard on that movie and I thought I failed everyone. A few months later, one of the co-producers of the film, whose name is DJ, forwarded Mark an article. He sent me uh, a tiny interview of an obscure site that said Guillermo del Toro was working on on a film with a cleaning lady and a fish man. And when I saw the trailer... You clean that lab, you get out. This creature is intelligent, capable of language. That film, of course, is The Shape of Water. 
It would go on to win the Best Picture Academy Award that year. And DJ was going like, this is obvious. This is obvious. This is stolen. So uh, I wanted to do a lot of things, but in all the choices I had, like shouting it off the roofs or telling it to the Academy, I didn't really know what to do. And it's not like Mark and DJ couldn't point to examples of studios being accused of stealing ideas. In 1992, humorist Art Buckwald won his lawsuit against Paramount Pictures. He alleged that they plagiarized one of his ideas, which was turned into the Eddie Murphy film Coming to America. Oh, do you think perhaps just once I might use the bathroom by myself? And Harlan Ellison accused Orion Pictures, who produced The Terminator, for plagiarizing his short story, Soldier from Tomorrow. He was born to be a killer. He doesn't understand hate or love or compassion. That Terminator is out there. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. The director of The Terminator, James Cameron, still denies this, but Orion settled for an undisclosed amount and Ellison was later added to the film's credits. But Mark knew that Del Toro couldn't have swiped this idea. His short had only premiered just a few months before. The timing didn't add up, right? He couldn't have stole that and do it in three months. So I, I suppose that was my main thing. I knew he couldn't have seen it because it wasn't online. Nick Milligan also came to a similar realization about yesterday. It is possible that someone connected to the movie uh, had heard of the book. You know, certainly I've had enough downloads over the years, but... You know, from, from Newcastle, Australia to Hollywood, it's it's a quite a distance. Um, as people have mentioned to me that if they were hypothetically still my idea, you would you would think at the very least they would change the the principal character's name. So the fact that they're both Jacks, I mean, it is it seems too too crazy. And uh, even though I am emotional about everything, I do have to be accepting of the fact that this could be and, and likely is uh, an insane coincidence. This kind of insane coincidence has a name. It's called multiple discovery. That's when different people independently come up with the same idea around the same time. The earliest study of this topic that I could find was from 1922. Two sociologists, William Ogburn and Dorothy Thomas, wrote about it for the journal Political Science Quarterly. This is how it starts. It is an interesting phenomenon that many inventions have been made two or more times by different inventors, each working without knowledge of the other's research. It is well known, for instance, that both Newton and Leibniz invented calculus. The theory of natural selection was developed practically identically by Wallace and by Darwin. It is claimed that both Langley and Wright invented the airplane, and we all know that the telephone was invented by Gray and by Bell. The article includes an appendix with 140 other examples. The steamboat, the sewing machine, the balloon, all have multiple inventors. My favorite example, the discovery that, quote, the skull is made of modified vertebrae, is claimed by two different Germans in the 1700s. Ogburn and Thomas focused on inventors and scientists, but it happens in art and pop culture, too. For example, at least two different authors are credited with coming up with the nonfiction novel, Rodolfo Walsh for his 1957 book, Operation Massacre, and Truman Capote for his 1965 book, In Cold Blood. On that note, two different biopics 
about Truman Capote were made around the same time. Capote, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. Since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pegged because of the way I am. And Infamous, starring Toby Jones. I love shawls. I have several. I think the prettiest one is the one Jennifer Jones gave me. The director of Infamous, Douglas McGrath, later told The New Yorker, it's very strange. I mean, generally I have my finger on whatever the opposite of the zeitgeist is. What are the chances of two scripts about Truman Capote going out at the same time? And on Twitter, there's even a name for when a bunch of people come up with the same joke at the same time. Tweet saming. Then again, we all draw from the same sources, so it shouldn't be a surprise when this happens. As Ogburn and Thomas wrote nearly 100 years ago, The invention of the steamboat was dependent upon the invention of the boat and the invention of the steam engine. The constituent elements are each in turn dependent on their constituent elements, and so on back to the ice ages and the resources of nature. Given the boat and the steam engine, is not the steamboat inevitable? So maybe our fascination with celebrities and time travel stories meant that it was just a matter of time before someone put those things together, just as it was just a matter of time before someone put the boat and the steam engine together. An enormity's version of the steam engine might have been this film from 1985. When the Normandy first came out, someone reminded me of that scene in Back to the Future. All right, this is, uh, this is an oldie. Well, it's an oldie where I come from. In the film, Michael J. Fox's character goes back in time to the 1950s. He plays with a rock band at his parents' high school prom, and he starts playing Johnny B. Good three years before it was released. John, John, it's Marvin, your cousin, Marvin Barry. You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this. And I, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and I was like, wow, I wonder if, you know, has that kicked around in my subconscious somehow? And maybe there were things in the collective unconscious that made a love story between a janitor and a fish man suddenly click in the heads of multiple people. After The Space Between Us was met with indifference in the Netherlands, Mark Nolkamper decided to release his movie online. He uploaded it in 2017. At first, The Space Between Us started to get attention because of its resemblance to The Shape of Water. But then something unexpected happened. The magical thing about it all was the whole world was watching my movie. The Space Between Us wasn't just seen as a also-ran or a victim of bad timing. People liked it on its own merits. And I was getting loads of love, very few negative responses. And they love it like they didn't in the Netherlands. And to have that change and be like, oh, it's such great, what are you working on now? And it's an amazing style and I love the story and I love the acting. It's all so perfectly done. That is that is like 180 degrees, like... He could have stolen five other stories of me if it does that every time, you know. So it's not a zero-sum game. There's room for both the space between us and the shape of water. Because at the end of the day, the premise is just the premise. The execution is what matters. Likewise, I think that enormity can easily coexist in a world with yesterday. From what I can tell, and I have only been going on the trailer, uh, my book is going to be a hell of a lot darker, I think. And with time... Nick Milligan made peace with Danny Boyle's film. You know, I've become more 
um, accepting of it because, I mean, what can you do? If it is just this crazy coincidence of the universe, um, you know, is there any point sort of wallowing in your own misery? <laughs> At first, yesterday made Milligan feel down about the writing process. But eventually, it ended up reinvigorating him. You know, it was a reminder of the fact that I would have liked to have been more prolific. You know, if you asked me back in 2013, would I have more books out by now? I would have said yes, but I don't. I've got a, I've got a number in the works and I really need to, to finish off these books I've been working on. So if you are a creative person and, and that's what you are compelled to do, you'll have many of those stories in you. So are you planning to watch yesterday? Absolutely. Um, it'll be a very surreal experience. I've sort of decided to get a big group of friends together and get drunk and all get tickets to the same session and, yeah, make a night of it. Studio 360's Sam Kim produced our story. You heard Gabriel Roth reading the excerpts from Nick Milligan's novel Enormity, and Lauren Hansen read from the article Are Inventions Inevitable? Enormity is available online, and you can watch The Space Between Us on our site, studio360.org. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He's very drawn to beauty and he likes being burdened. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... Hidden Figures. Great movie. I loved it. That movie is about three black women who save NASA. Former Daily Show correspondent Asif Manvi does a stand-up set. That is how high the bar is set for Hollywood to make a movie starring three black women. They have to save the space program. Plus the band Yola Tango and hilarious singing comedians Friends Who Folk all next time on Studio 360.